Today on Maine Calling, the drive towards more EVs in Maine. A central part of the state's climate action plan is to boost the use of electric vehicles, or EVs, in Maine. Right now, that goal is 219,000 EVs on Maine roads by the year 2030. Some people believe that goal isn't ambitious enough. But getting more EVs on the road isn't simple. EVs need charging stations that work consistently and are available in every corner of our very large state. Drivers have to be confident that their EV won't run out of charge. In addition, the electric grid has to be able to handle all of those charging stations. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, we check in on the progress towards Maine's EV goals and what it may take to meet them. Maine Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. This is Maine Calling, and I'm Jennifer Rooks. Seeing an electric vehicle, an EV, was once something of a rarity, but more and more of them are on our roads today. Today, we're going to discuss plans to boost EV ownership in the state. We will also learn about plans to roll out more EV charging stations, and we will address concerns about owning an EV in a cold climate. My guest today, Joyce Taylor, who is Chief Engineer with the Maine Department of Transportation. She is also co-chair of the State Climate Council's Transportation Working Group. Michael Stoddard is Executive Director of Efficiency Maine, and Barry Woods is Senior Director of e-mobility at revision energy he is also director at plug-in america and co-founder of drive electric maine we invite you to join the conversation would you consider buying an electric vehicle if not what are your concerns about them if you're an ev driver what has your experience been like you can send an email to talk at mainepublic.org post a comment on facebook or instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Six, six. Welcome to all of you and thank you for being here today. Michael, I'm going to start with you. I know that Maine's goal is um, 219,000 EVs on the road by 2030. Are we on pace to hit that? How many are on the road today? Uh, there are about 10,000 on the road today, a little less. Uh, and I'd say at the rate we're going, we're not on pace to hit that. But we have some time to get there. And I think we're, as we're coming out of the pandemic, we're likely to see a pretty dramatic increase in the pace. So I, I think we have a good chance to get close. And I think as the manufacturers are adding more and more of these types of vehicles and people getting more and more familiar with them, you're going to see a lot more. And I, I think we'll pick up the pace significantly. And talking about the manufacturers, last spring, Maine public reporter Patty White did a story about how Maine's the dealership supply of EVs was not able to keep up with the demand for them. Uh, Michael, is that still the case? No, it's gotten much better. Uh, I mean, anyone who was driving around Maine in the last couple of years might have noticed that there were no cars of any type on the lots of those dealerships. It didn't matter what you wanted. Um, and that affected EVs as well. 
but that's gotten much better since the chip shortage has has been mostly improved and you're seeing more and more inventory on the dealership lots now. So there's more types of models and the actual inventory is coming in in uh, in good supply. All right, Joyce, electric vehicles need charging stations. I know the main Department of Transportation is installing charging stations. What can you tell me about the current situation for electric charging stations and what's next? What's on the near-term horizon? What's on the mid-term horizon, et cetera? Well, we've received a lot of federal money, which, you know, when we um, were all planning the Maine Won't Wait climate document, we didn't know how we were gonna fund charging stations. We've since had some main jobs recovery program money, <laughs> as well as the um, federal money that, that came in the BIL package. And we just got a $15 million discretionary grant um, that's called the Charging Fueling Infrastructure Discretionary Program. So very exciting. And we are working with our partners at Efficiency Maine to get these chargers out and installed. Um, we've put out several requests for proposals and one of the things that we're very focused on is making sure that you can go to any part of this state and feel like you can drive an electric vehicle and have a fast charger. So within about a year, you're going to be able to go to, you know, the crown of Maine, um, the county. You're going to be able to go to down east Maine. You're going to be able to go to some destinations in western Maine, as well as along the coast in the southern Maine. So, you know, we really think it's important when someone's considering an EV Maybe they have that one trip a year where they go to Presque Isle to visit family and they live in Biddeford and they need to know that they can get there from here to there. And I think we're going to accomplish that. And that's going to I, I think that's really going to help push people in terms of what they're thinking about with EVs. We also are putting out a lot of level two chargers. And so for those of the, you who don't know, level threes are, are faster chargers. You can charge in you know 20 to 30 minutes uh, on average. The level twos are where you might be staying and having lunch, or you might be hanging out in Freeport for a while, um, or hanging out in a downtown, you know, in Machias or or something like that. And you have a couple hours to spare to charge, or your workforce um, where you work, you might have charging stations available with this money. We're looking at places with apartment dwellings, um, people who don't have a garage, to be able to offer them chargers as well. So we are really looking to blanket the state. Well, let me talk about that a little bit. You're, you've talked about all the money that's coming into Maine to build these and, and talking about looking to blanket the state. That makes it sound like maybe the state isn't blanketed right now. It's not. And I think um, some people would tell you their experience with chargers are they're not very reliable, some of the ones that have been in for a while. And so I, I do think that we've been moving up Um up the interstate in the Bangor area, we have chargers open. Uh, Michael can correct me, but I think this year we're going to have a number open in down east and northern Maine. So we're getting there. There are a, le a lot of level twos. We've had some notices of funding go out um, to get the level twos out and up and running. So we are making some progress, but another year will make a big difference. All right. Well, Michael, let's talk about some of the concerns people might have when they're considering EVs. Um, Actually, I'm going to I'm going to back up just a little bit and turn to you, Barry. There are many people who are uncomfortable with the idea of transitioning to electric vehicles. Um, there are people who are uncomfortable, have range anxiety, but then there are also those who are downright hostile to the EV rollout. Why do you think this issue is so polarizing? 
Well, thanks for hosting this conversation, Jennifer. For, um, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of fossil fuel executives who are extremely concerned about electric vehicles. I think that uh, it's unfortunate to see the polarization just generally um, in the U.S. And I think uh, it's uh, it's troubling to see how it's been manipulated into sort of the political dialogue, because truly it ought to be a bipartisan issue. Um, I think it's I think, uh, to be honest, I think a tremendous amount of the misinformation that's out there is being uh, fueled, to use a bad pun, by uh, a lot of the fossil fuel interests and, you know, where it's starting to hurt folks. Um, and it and it's it's coupled with, um, you know, I think a, a desire to uh, uh, keep the status quo um, because it's easy uh, and frankly, the marketing of the technology needs to improve significantly the messaging behind it, because I think the best way to understand the technology is to drive it. And I think we need to get more people to try it. And I think that will answer a lot of the, the issues that we've got in terms of this polarizing issue. All right, Michael, I want to turn to you to, to address some of the just very basic day-to-day -day concerns some people have. Number one is physics. We live in a cold state and batteries are affected by cold. They don't operate as well. Plus, as we were reminded this past year, when there are big storms, people lose power in Maine. You can't charge your EV if you don't have power. How do you inspire enthusiasm for EV adoption given these factors? Well, I think education is probably uh, number one. And uh, part of that is what Barry just said, which is people just need to see it around and they need to get a taste of it. It's going to be very similar to heat pumps. And as you know, Jennifer, um, I'm a big champion of heat pumps in this state. And they are, we have seen tremendous progress in this state with a technology that 10 years ago, everybody felt the same way about that as they feel about EVs. And I'm predicting that 10 years from now, we're going to look back and say, gosh, this, this switch to EVs was much easier than we thought, and they worked much better than we thought. And, uh, and so I'm optimistic that people will, will learn by seeing them around. And that's what we just need more of. So number one, um, the typical range of the newest generation of EVs is over 200 miles. The average Boehner drives 35 miles a day. So this idea that you're going to be left stranded on the side of the road because your car gets 20, 30 percent less mileage on a really cold day, it just doesn't apply to most situations. If you even if you lose, yeah. which is true, you Michael, you, I understand you, that most people don't drive very far in one day, but most people only have one car. You know, this is not a state where people can have two, three, four cars. And so I usually drive I, I I'm, I'm speaking for a lot of people usually drive a few miles a day, but there are times when I go a long way, you know, and I, maybe I want to go to Montreal. Maybe I want to go to New York city. Maybe I don't want to be sitting at the side of the road with my car plugged in and waiting for it to charge when I'm a woman and I'm about, I'm by myself. These are not, I, I think it's beyond just education. I think people have real world concerns. Well, well, if I might, a part of the education would be that there are a wide variety of types of electric vehicles. Some are have exclusively one battery. And in those types of cars, as you're describing, if you're going to be taking a trip that's more than 200 miles, 
then you know you have to consider whether that's a good fit for you. But there are many other types of of uh, electrified vehicles, including something called a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, which has both a fuel tank and an electric battery. So for most days when you're driving around town and going to the grocery store, the battery's plenty. It goes 30, 40 miles on a charge. That's going to be plenty for your daily drives. But if it's the if it's that special occasion you want to drive to New York City or Montreal or wherever you're going, it switches over to gas. So there's an example where I just think we need to educate people more about the variety of options that there are. If they want to take uh, if they want to take this in steps, that's great. Um, we just need to be getting our overall fleet more and more efficient. Um, and it's in everyone's interest because it's going to help lower their bills. And, and we're very eager to help people lower their, their costs of transportation. So I think there are good options. Joyce, as an engineer, you have to consider the weight of electric vehicles. They weigh more than um, others. What kind of changes must be made to roads and bridges? What kind of things do you have to think about to be ready? Yeah, I mean, they're heavier and they will take a toll on pavement. I'm not as worried right now about bridges and having to post bridges, but some of the generation of electric um, large trucks could be very heavy. That is a concern that we have. We'll have to see what comes about with that. Um, but definitely, you know, we do have an older population of bridges that we are posting more than we did even 10 years ago, posting bridges for weight. And so that is a consideration. I think, again, we have a little bit of time for that technology to get into the state. We do have a very active bridge inspection program. And I just always want to tell the public, you know, I don't stay awake at night worrying about our bridges. I, I trust our inspectors and we will go post a bridge if we have to, or we'll close it. Um, but yeah, the, the weight thing is an issue. It's also, you know, the guardrails that we have today are not designed for those kind of weights or the center of where the batteries are. We're just beginning as a nation to test guardrail with some of these trucks. Um, so that's, I think, something that nationally is going to have to change are the guardrail standards as well. All right. And, and Barry, I want to ask you, is Maine's electric grid ready for a large-scale rollout of EVs? Can it handle all these charging stations that Michael's talking about? Uh, the short answer is that yes, but can it improve? Of course. I think the grid is going to be seeing some significant challenges as a lot of electrification, a lot of things transition into electrification. I would say just to push back a little bit on the public charging, the need to have public charging to facilitate longer trips. And I, I, I agree with Michael that it's like any consumer purchase. You have to look at the functionality needs that you've got to really help, you know, refine your decision making. But I think it's really, really important that even though there's a lot of stuff in the press about the need for public charging and fast charging and long distance travel corridors, et cetera, the vast majority of time these cars charge at night at home or even at the workplace during the day. And that's a significant difference in terms of behavior surrounding transportation. It also, from the grid standpoint, means that even though it's a large load, it's also the single most manageable large load in terms of the timing. You can, you can essentially set it and forget, forget it in terms of charging many times where it occurs at night when the grid is completely underutilized. And so I think there's a number of advantages that electric vehicle transportation on the grid side has, um, you know, that uh, 
is not going to cause undue stress. And certainly during the period of adoption, people, ISO New England is actively engaged in project in projecting adoption rates specifically to see where in the grid are there weak points? And when you say ISO New England, you mean the um, the organization that oversees Maine's, uh, not just Maine's, New England's electric grid. We do need to go to a break. We're talking about electric vehicles on Maine Calling. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today we're discussing electric vehicles, charging infrastructure in Maine, and more. My guest, Barry Woods with Revision Energy, Joyce Taylor with the Maine Department of Transportation, and Michael Stoddard with Efficiency Maine. You can join our conversation by email or phone or social media. I will warn you that there are lots of calls coming in. You may not get through on your first try. 1-800-399-3566. Our email address, talk at mainpublic.org. We're going to go right now to with um, the phones and David Say, who is co-founder and CEO of Chargely. Uh, David, tell us about Chargely. What is it and why is it needed? Hey, uh, yeah, Chargely is, you know, really just a group of EV enthusiasts that want um, better charging experiences for everyone. And, and we've currently built an app it's available on the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store um, that allows people to find chargers, rate them, and share their experiences. Um, we think that uh, through a community-driven approach, we can sort of share uh, information about what's good and what's bad about current charging in our areas or even on our journeys. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, check us out. Uh, we're, we're really trying to help build a great community around uh, EV charging and great EV charging experiences. All right. Have you found that charging stations and the infrastructure is improving? Yeah, I, I see it improving substantially. I mean, I've only had an EV for the last two years, and even over the last two years, um, you're seeing a lot more uh, stations pop up, not just uh, public fast charging stations, but level twos. Um, I think there's a, a lot of underrated experiences to be had when um, the restaurant or brewery that you're going to happens to have a level two charge and you can sort of sit and relax and not worry about whether or not you can get to your next stop. All right. And David, I understand you work with the Rue Institute. How is the Rue Institute uh, involved in EV, the EV world? Uh, the Rue Institute has been very supportive. Um, they've been connecting us to a lot of great partners uh, in the main area and the main ecosystem. Um, they very much believe in uh, this shift towards cleaner transportation, which we're, we're a big part of. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, we're right now looking uh, for partners in the main area that are supporting uh, EV tourism, we like to think. Uh, Maine's got a lot of great sites to see and a lot of interested travelers from places like Massachusetts uh, that are now traveling in their EVs and would love to see Maine uh, while charging their electric vehicle. All right. Well, thanks so much for calling in. That was David Say, co-founder and CEO of Chargely. Uh, we'll go to John, who's calling from Hope. Hi, John. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, I saw a piece in The uh, in the Guardian about France, and uh, they set up a leasing program for cars, and uh, they had to shut it down after six weeks. Uh, they bought 24,000 vehicles. They had 90,000 applicants, and it was 100 pounds a month. To, rent, to lease a vehicle. I thought for a way to get Maine into it would be to have uh, vehicles that are leased because of the price. Yeah, Michael, have we thought. thought about anything like that? Our rebates are eligible for folks, whether they purchase or lease. And leasing is a great option. And in fact, I think a significant fraction of the EVs in Maine are currently leased. The dealers 
uh, love to do that. They have, they're all set up for it. And it's a very quick way to make sure you're going to get access to the federal tax credit because they'll usually take the federal tax credit right off the total lease cost. So you get to benefit of that and you don't have to deal with the paperwork. The, the dealership and the manufacturers will handle that for you. So yeah, leasing is a great way to go. And especially with so much evolution in the technology right now, you know, you get into it for a few years and then, and then you, you can upgrade to the next level um, after that. It's great. Yeah, so it's a great pathway. Let me ask you, Michael, um, a John's question is whether Maine is thinking of buying a fleet of vehicles to lease. And the answer is no to that. But I also want to ask you, you're talking about rebates and you talked about federal credits. Tell me about Maine's rebates, because I understand that the federal credits are very limited. Not not many EVs actually qualify right now. So if you go to the Efficiency Main website, which I highly encourage folks to do, there's a ton of information there, both just generically about how electric vehicles work and what their benefits are and where you can find charging stations around Maine, but also all the information that we have about financial incentives, whether it's the federal tax credits or the rebates that Efficiency Maine pays out. The information is all on our website at efficiencymaine.com. And when you get there, you will see that uh, the federal tax credits are, as you say, Jennifer, uh, limited to certain models and manufacturers, and it's it's a function of uh, federal law and it, uh, where the batteries are manufactured and where the cars are assembled. So there's different tiers of federal tax incentive. Interestingly, if you lease the vehicle, you don't have to worry about that stuff, um, and because the 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 leases the the tax credit is going to go to the manufacturer who's leasing you the vehicle. So uh, that's one way to get around it. But there still are uh, a handful. And I think the the the, the amount of the tax credit is very significant. It's uh, $7,500 if you get one of the vehicles that gets the full amount. And the good news is that um, as every month goes by, the manufacturers have been bringing more and more of their manufacturing into the United States. And that's been the key element to determine how much of the tax credit is available to, to different models. So as the months go by, since that new rule was passed, they're able to shift more of their production into the US and that's gonna make more models available. Um, go and then there's a pretty lengthy list of vehicles. Our restriction on eligibility for vehicles for an efficiency main rebate is whether they, if they're a passenger vehicle whether they have a manufacturer's suggested retail price of less than $50,000. And if it's a pickup truck or a van, less than $80,000. But for us, we don't, we're not, uh, we're not making any distinction on where the vehicle was manufactured. All right. I'm going to go to Nicole on Facebook. Nicole writes, they have no range. They can't even charge in the cold. No heat if the temps are below 15 degrees. No electricity infrastructure to support them. My home electrical will not support a charging station. Rising electric costs. No plans to pay road tax. They are heavier than gasoline vehicles and do more damage to the road. Battery life is only five years old and they are not replaceable. So requires a new car every five years at three times the price of a gas car. Totally not for rural living and the whole state is rural. Barry. I don't know where to start on that. I have to say it's like a talking point from the Koch brothers uh, memo. I mean, 
First of all, yes, you can charge at home. I've had I've been charging vehicles for over 10 years on 100 amp res residential service. And because you charge at night, there's no competition because you're not awake and there's no other appliances being used. So that's the first thing. Rural is a challenge in the sense that there's longer distances and some cold, but again, and, and cold. But again, I think we're looking at let's back up for a second. This is a newish, newer technology that's rapidly improving. So to take this point in time and make a blanket assessment about the viability of the technology is to dismiss the progress of human beings and technology historically. So I think if we look at 10 years ago, when I had my first Nissan Leaf, it got 60 to 70 miles of range. And my wife thought I was crazy to get it. I thought it was really cool, by the way. <laughs> but now, you know, you're looking at cars that get 250 to 300 miles of range with even with a 20 to 30 percent depletion of battery based on temperature variation. You've got lots of range to be able to facilitate day to day travel. And you could do a plug in hybrid if, you know, if you need to have you know, additional range based on your personal use. The cost of electricity historically is much lower than gasoline. And there are a number of indicators of that in terms of comparison. And uh, there used to be a U.S. Department of Energy website called the e-gallon that went through a formula. And the last time I've, it's been a while since I've looked, but in general, an e-gallon is calibrated on what the average cost of gas is based on your state. And it's a savings of a dollar or more, depending on the prevailing cost per gallon of, ga of gasoline. So I appreciate the concern, but I think that there's a lot of factual inaccuracy in, the, in sort of the, in the litany of complaints. And on the road user issue, which is something that comes up frequently, the gas tax was never designed to fund infrastructure in the first place. And, the, and so I would say... EV drivers are very sensitive to the fact that they want to pay their fair share of infrastructure. Anybody who uses public resources in good conscience ought to be. But at the same time, we have to come up with a system that is that is fair and that actually gets the job done. And so the larger question that she raises really is not about EVs not paying road tax. It's coming up with a better way to support transportation-based infrastructure that's separate from fuel. And Kyle on Facebook writes, I've had a Chevy Bolt since October 2018 and I've had no complaints with it. I do notice a range drop of about 25% when it's extremely cold, but it can also exceed my expected range when it's nice out. My vehicle comes in at 3,600 pounds, which is heavy, but not considerably heavier than the comparable version. And it is actually 2,000 pounds lighter than a Suburban. The only maintenance I've performed has been replacement brakes, not due to overuse, but actually due to rusting from underuse. Um, we'll go up to Teresa calling from Wiscasset. Hi, Teresa, go ahead. Hi, I have a simple question. Hazardous materials to develop the, or to make the batteries and also disposal of them is a big concern of mine. Plus continuing to say that we shouldn't have concerns about the electric cost, I think is inappropriate because we're also locked into just the one that covers our area, like CMP. So if I also have my car plus my house, only choice is CMP. I'm kind of hosed on that, too. Thank you. All right. We actually have several uh, questions coming in about the hazardous materials to make these batteries, the environmental um, concerns people have about that. Um, I'll go back to you, Barry. 
Um, there's actually an interesting white paper on the Plug in America website that addresses the rare earth mining issues that are raised by this. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm not dismissive of this of this issue uh, in the sense that we have an opportunity in this transition to create a sustainable supply chain and not to just repeat some of the short sighted extraction based um, technologies in the past that have caused so much disruption to the planet. So I think we owe it to ourselves and the future generations to figure out how best to sustainably, you know, extract the, whatever is necessary for, for batteries. I will say I've seen studies that show the amount of material needed for battery production at scale is minuscule relative to the amount of fossil fuel extraction, if you look at it in terms of tonnage, et cetera. So the scale is very different. I think that the manufacturers all are very concerned about battery recycling and the battery technology is, is constantly improving because again, we're at the beginning stages of, of a technology that's bound to continue to, to mature. So I think that there's there's a number of concerns that I think that are legitimate, but I also think that the scale is different and the industry is working very, very hard to address recycling. The, only, the last point that I would make is these are very large batteries that are needed in the vehicles for transportation applications. And so even though the battery may degrade at some point where you're not getting the range that you need for the transportation application, that doesn't mean you throw the battery away. So the battery has potential opportunities for second life applications, including backup generation for the home. But does that happen right now, though? I mean, our, our, I mean, you say potential, but it's it's not happening right now, is it? Well, there's not a lot of cars yet that have reached the lifespan needed to to actually get a viable industry. And I think that's again, that's part of the maturity, you know, uh, okay. issue. I mean, I think I think as the cars become age out of that application. Yeah, I think we see. Human beings are very devious and uh, and very good at creating ways to make money. Okay, I'm going to go to an email from Jane, and I'll send this one to you, Joyce. Uh, Jane asks, what about families who don't park overnight in their own yard? We're islanders, parking in a public garage without individual reserved spaces. So we will be putting out some more um, RFPs and notices of funding where especially municipalities and other folks can apply for the level twos where they can charge overnight. I think trying to spread the wealth of where these go so people can um, have different options on the island, for example. Um, I, I joke that every brewery in Maine is trying to get a level two right now. And so um, they're really pretty popular. People like to get them. Some folks will let you park overnight. You can work something out with them. But I think there is an opportunity. Uh, we're very aware of the issue of people not having a garage. It's an equity issue. It's trying to make it easier for people who don't have a single family home to be able to have an EV. So we're definitely aware of that. And in fact, in the discretionary grant that we received, part of what we really focused on was this issue. Yeah, and Joyce, let me ask you about, um, you talked about every brewery in Maine wanting one. If a business owner wants to install a charger, um, are there grants from the state to help them do so? We have done some already with some of the money that we've had. This next um, discretionary grant, as soon as we can start spending the money, 
I dare say we are going to have some more programs out there. That's the plan to have some more level twos and allow businesses. Um, anyone who is willing to leave it open to the public is probably going to be eligible. A lot of hotels get them. We've we've in the past um, a lot of hotels use it as a tourism attraction. So yes, there will be more coming where people can apply. Barry. Yeah, I want to just riff on Joyce's comments about uh, multi-unit dwelling because I think it's a really significant issue in as much as the built environment traditionally does not never anticipated vehicle charging off of their electric. So we're in a situation where we've got a new technology and we're kind of locked in a little bit from prior design. But I do think there's a number of things going on that help folks who don't have easy access to residential. One is uh, we are seeing on the development side, Codes, Scarborough, Portland, South Portland, that are now instituting actual requirements for there be EV capability as part of any parking arrangements. That's one thing. So the future design obviously right. is going to anticipate it. The other thing I would say real quickly is workplace charging during the day as more people return to work is actually a really viable way to facilitate day-to-day -day charging. And, and just as an example in revision, we put in 12 plugs we have a fleet that charges at night and they go off during the day to do their thing. And then the, then, then the co-owner employees come in and charge during the day. And Great. so you've got perfect use of that technology for multi-unit. Great. We're going to go to Josh, who's calling from Augusta. Hi, Josh. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you for uh, getting me on. I just want to say that I think labeling EVs as clean energy is very misleading. Um, let us not forget that the electricity used to charge those EVs still largely comes from fossil fuel burning. Okay, Josh, so that's a great that's question. Really Michael, what's your answer to that? Uh, there is fossil fuel in the mix of generators that feed the grid in Maine, but it's uh, a small and shrinking percentage. So a lot of our power in Maine comes from hydro and uh, wind and solar. And then and then even when you factor in the emissions that are associated with natural gas plants in New England, it's still dramatically lower emissions than what you would get from burning a gas or a diesel vehicle. All right. Well, Josh, thanks for your question. Um, we are going to take another quick break. This is Maine Calling, and we're talking about electric vehicles in Maine. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling Today. We are talking about electric vehicles, plans to get more of them in Maine. Joining me, Michael Stoddard, Executive Director of Efficiency Maine, Barry Woods, Senior Director of E-Mobility at Revision Energy, and Joyce Taylor, Chief Engineer with the Maine Department of Transportation. Share your questions or comments. Email us at talk at mainepublic.org. You can also post on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. We'll go to Christine calling from Alna. Hi, Christine. Go ahead. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, we've owned an EV for over 10 years. We started with a little one that got 80 miles to a charge, and that did have range anxiety, but I found for my everyday life it worked really well, and you learned pretty quickly how to figure out where charging stations were if you're going, say, to Boston or something like that. Our current car gets over 300 miles per charge, so range anxiety is gone. We have, you know, I use it as essentially it's our only car. We use it all the time. The issue of, you mentioned an issue of being on the side of the road trying to charge your car at the middle of the night and worrying about that as a, a single woman. And 
most charging stations are in populated areas. And if you plan, your, you just get to, you learn pretty quickly how to plan your trip and um, charge it when you know you're going to be going somewhere. So, you know, many of the issues that we used to have 10 years ago really don't exist now for an EV. I think you can have only an EV and be fine. We don't have the newer EVs lose less, you know, mileage when it's really cold. We come out actually with a new one through this cold January, when we had cold spells in January, we were getting pretty close to the same mileage as the car went. So technology is getting better. Cars are getting better. Christine, thanks so much for your um, perspective, Joyce. I I just want to say that not only did Maine get money for the um, fast charging, the level three charging, every state in the country got money. And the goal is for anyone who's going anywhere in the country, any state, to have the same charging experience, to know that you can go up to a charger and it's reliable. And what I hear a lot of people say right now is the frustration around some, you know, even in Portland trying to find a fast charger that's working. So the chargers that Michael and I are working on with the federal money have like a 97% reliability um, rule that has to go with it. And we're measuring, they go online, we can see how often they're offline and they get penalized if they don't meet, you know, this really high standard. So I think that is going to change some of the experience. I'm, I'm glad to hear your last caller. Um, that was great. But I just I think it's important to the comment that you made earlier, Jennifer, that there is a reliability element that comes with this money. OK, Michael. I just want to uh, piggyback on what Joyce was saying. Though those federal rules are quite prescriptive. One thing they require is that these high speed chargers be placed no more than 50 miles apart. So on the major routes, certainly on I-95 and on uh, half a dozen other major routes across Maine, they will be every 50 miles or less. So right now, for example, between Portland and Bangor, there are going to be six of those locations. It's only 130 mile distance. So you're looking at every 20 to 30 miles, you're going to have these high-speed chargers. Additionally, the feds require that they be at least four of these chargers at every location. So if one of them breaks, there's still three others that are working. So there's a lot of redundancy built in that I think will also address the concern that, that Joyce said. Uh, I would welcome anyone to go check out the uh, locator tool that's on the Efficiency Main website where you can see where they're all located. Uh, there are now more than 470 locations in Maine with 1,000 ports that are publicly accessible for any car. So we're really making progress and there's much more to come. Okay, great. We're going to go to Forrest calling from Medford. Hi, Forrest. Go ahead. Good morning. So my wife and I, we own two EVs. Uh, we live in Piscataquis County, population of 235 in our town. Uh, our last EV was a Chevy Bolt, uh, older technology. We put 40,000 miles on it last year. Uh, it worked that well. It worked so well that we bought a second EV. Uh, Tesla dropped their prices on the Model Y. We got that plus the tax credit. And it looks like we're going to put about 40,000 miles on that car this year. We've taken trips to Canada. We've gone to Connecticut. Uh, it hasn't been an issue. So for those that are worried about range anxiety, about it being cold, I was out driving my Chevy Bolt when we had that negative 50-degree temperature last winter with the wind chill. It wasn't an issue. Uh, I think the infrastructure in Maine is there. 
Uh, is it there for everybody to turn to an EV? Probably not. Is it there for how many people have EVs right now? I would say so. I've never, especially with my Tesla, I've never run into an issue where I've had to wait for a charger. There's been, you know, chargers not working. The other thing that Tesla does that I'm hoping the other companies will accept or adopt is when I plan a route, Tesla tells me where to stop and charge. It preconditions the battery so it charges quickly. Uh, I have a, a plow truck that's gasoline. I hate going to the gas station to fill it up. I will never buy another gasoline vehicle again if I don't have to. Forrest, thank you for calling with your perspective. I really appreciate it. I have an email here from John. Bottom line, what's the cheapest way to get in an all-electric four- or five-passenger vehicle right now? Something that's in stock and not an enormous wait list. Michael. Uh, on our website, there's a list of all the EVs that are eligible for an uh, efficiency main rebate. And because we have that MSRP cap of $50,000, these tend to be on the lower end of the price point. These are not luxury vehicles. So um, there's a bunch of cars that I would say fit that bill. The VW ID4 is good. The uh, Hyundai and Kia both make a bunch of cars that are uh, sort of in the thirty-five dollars to $45,000 range before tax credit, before rebates. They have a bunch of cars that would meet, meet that description. The Nissan Aria uh, and the Toyota um, BZ4X, those are all in that sort of mid to lower And those are in stock at vehicles. stations? Uh, you know, I think you have to check in, but they, they have them on the lots. Yeah. All right. We'll go to Stephen calling from Bucksport. Hi, Stephen. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Stephen. I own the local EV chapter on Facebook here in Bucksport. We have five charging stations, public charging stations, and we have, I think, about 20 to 30 electric vehicles in our town. And I've ridden in about 133 electric vehicles. I also advocate for electric cars being uh, commonplace. I actually help a car dealership in New Hampshire promote their electric cars. It's called Green Wave Electric Vehicles on uh, 25 Lafayette Road in Northampton, uh, New Hampshire. And uh, it's becoming more and more commonplace. I mean, I've seen so many cars come through Bucksport. I mean, Bucksport is the place to be. <laughs> right. Uh, just, right. So we just uh, we just had uh, Tesla wall chargers that are universal chargers installed at 83 Franklin Street um, for the Spofford Lodge. And... Uh, it's pretty cool. We got the uh, waterfront chargers. We got a. We even have a free charger at uh, a business called Powerwise next to the House of Pizza. And uh, by the way, Steve, can I, can I Steven, I so appreciate you calling in with your enthusiasm. I'm going to try to um, pick up the pace though, because so many people want to take part in the program. Thank you so much for calling in. And um, we're going to go to Warren calling from Pemaquid. Hi, Warren. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I thought we've, my wife and I have had uh, an EV for about two and a half years, and, and in fact, it's our only vehicle. Uh, and uh, I just thought I'd address a couple of things that have popped up. One is uh, long distance driving. Uh, we stop every couple hours, two to three hours, uh, and there are chargers, the fast chargers near restaurants, uh, Panera. Uh, anywhere along the highway. So when you stop, you just plug in and go in, go to the restroom, get a cup of coffee or have your lunch, come back out. You don't have to fully 
charge your car. Very few people do that. You charge ah. it up 80% or so and then go. And you can drive another two or three hours. Stop, Warren, thank drivers. you. Thank you for calling in and, and um, adding your perspective to this. Um, I appreciate it. Um, we are going to go to an email from Austin. Austin writes, the price of new vehicles, especially electric, are unaffordable for most of us. Cost of electricity to charge vehicles. I put heat pumps in my home like the state said to. I have a 1,200 square foot house and my last electric bill was $500. What will it be if I charged my vehicles also? Unaffordable. Michael? Well, your electric bill is going to go up a little bit because you're using more electricity. But the good news is your bill for the other fuel that you're not using anymore is going to go down by even more. And that's just simple math. The electricity is a cheaper way to run your heat pumps than to run your boiler and to run your EV instead of your old gas car. So I know it hurts a little bit to see that electric bill go up, and that is going to happen. But it goes up less than the corresponding decrease in your fuel bill. And, and Joyce, I'm going to read just part of an email here from Max. Um, Max is talking about EV charging station etiquette. He says mm -hmm. his biggest complaint is the non-EV charging customers who park blocking access to charging stations. Um, says one time he encountered a truck driver sleeping with his truck parked in front of an Ellsworth charging station. Um, you're nodding. You've heard about this. It's one thing yes. to have a charging station. It's something else to have it be free and open and not blocked by another vehicle that just used it as a parking space. Yeah, and I, I think this is where some public education needs to happen. And I think as we get more and more EVs and there's pressure for those chargers, you know, before a lot of times if you drove by them, maybe you didn't see somebody or you saw them once in a while. I know for me, um, driving around Augusta, it's very common to see people at the chargers. We have some level twos at our building and I really probably need to put in another couple of ports. They're so well sought after. But yeah, I think it's something as a state we need to work on with public education. The other thing we're working on is to make sure that all of the sites that we're funding are um, American Disabilities Act um, accessible. And so I think that is an important piece um, as well. All right, um, let's see, we'll go to Eric in Rockland. Hi, Eric, go ahead. Hi, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I've wanted a EV for years, um, uh, but I haven't been able to make the switch. Uh, working class guy, and um, my question kind of involves some of the repair costs of EVs. I heard some pretty big horror stories in my experience with a hybrid, trying to repair a simple um, ABS pump was, um, you know, in the thousands of dollars. Um, and I was wondering if Maine had any um, programs to help bring the repair costs down for EVs um, through shops or, uh, you, know, you know, repair shops or. Uh... Yeah, Barry, do you know the answer to that? Um, <laughs> there, there are people out there who like to work on their own cars. <laughs> yeah. I, um, well, a couple of layers to that question. I think the first is that it's really important to keep in mind that electric uh, vehicles, the all battery electric, not the plug-in hybrid, but the pure electric have 90% fewer moving parts. And so in my experience, and the data sh shows that the maintenance costs are much lower. In fact, um, I think most commonly, it's like tires and that sort of thing. And you and because of regenerative braking, you don't wear out brake pads as quickly. So the maintenance needs are lower. I know that there are, the auto tech program at um, Southern Maine Community College has got an EV-based training 
for techs. I don't know the, I have not, I have not done a do it yourself repair on EVs. So that's an interesting, it's an interesting question, but I know that certainly on the tech side, I, I'm starting to see regular dealerships that, you know, service EVs like they do any, any of the other combustion vehicles. And Joyce. Joyce. I would just add that there's a number of efforts going on right now to basically come up with some money to help the community colleges and other folks to be able to really focus on the EV market and the training um, for auto techs and to really spread that wealth out. All right. Thanks, Eric, for your question. Um, we're going to go to Josh, who's calling from the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Josh, we're super tight on time. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, thanks for taking my call. I wanted to highlight that one way Maine can take full advantage of the ongoing EV transition and our great work on EV charging infrastructure, which is made possible by your guests on the show today, is by adopting a new vehicle emission standard called Advanced Clean Cars 2 that the Board of Environmental Protection is currently considering. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, this is something that's probably worth a whole show on its own. Um, Right before the BEP right now, a new um, uh, sort of a new layer, a new uh, emission standard. Uh, Boy, it's way too late in the show to have a pro and con discussion about this. But Josh, I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, Thank you so much for bringing that up today. Um, Just uh, so many questions. We really have about 30 seconds left, Michael. And I just want to say to you, there are so many questions about affordability. um, And I'm wondering that even even with these rebates, are EVs really affordable for people who are making, um, you know, a working class wage in Maine? They can be. Uh, One person called in earlier and and made this point, and I I wanted to jump in and say that we do have rebates for used vehicles for folks who meet certain low income criteria. So if you're in that income bracket, you should check it out. Uh, And that is possibly a a pathway for you because the rebates can be very helpful there. The federal tax credit also applies for those used vehicles for low income purchasers. So that's one thing. The other is this battery technology is being mass produced now in a way that it wasn't five years ago. And it's getting better and better and lighter and lighter. And as that happens, the price will come down. And so we do expect pa- what they call parity. Thank uh, you. I really have to wrap you off though, uh, wrap you up, Michael. And thank you so much, Michael Stoddard, Efficiency Maine. Also with me, Joyce Taylor from the MDOT, Barry Woods from Revision Energy. Today's sound engineer was Jane Donahue. Tomorrow on the program, our guest is U.S. Representative Shelley Pingree. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.